0: Welcome to the Weekend Message from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach, California. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. Matthew chapter 5, and as you do that, um, last year, uh, in fact, tomorrow is the anniversary, uh, my dad died, and uh, that was something that I was uh, afraid of happening for most, well, all of my adult life. Since I became a Christian in high school, one of my greatest fears is that my dad would die without Jesus. And, um, and so uh, last year, uh, he did die. And Julie and I went to the memorial service that was actually not until June. Uh, and it was, my dad lived in Southern California down in San Clemente. But all of his family is from upstate New York, so the memorial service was actually up there, and we were living in South Carolina. So we drove up, and as we drove up, there was sort of a trepidation about this memorial service. Um, One of the trepidations, actually, was that we drove through New York City at rush hour. And have you ever driven in New York City? How many of you have ever driven in New York City? All right, it is quite an experience. And this, just to add to it, uh, we were in a driving rainstorm. You could barely see in front of you. And on top of it, you know that those drivers are the rudest drivers in the world and they will cut you off. And their favorite part of the, uh, of the car, of course, is the horn. They are blowing their horn regardless of anything. They're blowing their horn. And to add to our frustration, our horn was not working. And so I'm pushing on the horn, and it won't work. I mean, I'm rolling down the window and just yelling out the window, ah, ah, I just had to make some kind of sound just because it was so frustrating. And uh, we eventually somehow got on the lower deck of the George Washington Bridge, which if you've ever been there, I can just tell you, at rush hour in a driving rainstorm, it is as close to hell as there is on this earth. It's like Jonah in the belly of the whale, that's how we felt. But anyway, we've, we eventually made it up there, And the real concern of uh, why we were sort of uncomfortable, Julie and I, is we were trying to figure out what we should talk about at the memorial service. Uh, My dad was not a religious guy, and so we did not have it in a church. It was in my uncle's backyard, and it would have been very inappropriate uh, for us to have like a church service because my dad wasn't churchy. They would have all just thought that's what I wanted. So there was no messages and there was no worship music and there was no long prayers or anything like that. And in fact, in the end, all we did is we just shared stories about my dad. And it was, it was a great thing. There was about 50 people there and I heard stories about my dad that I'd never heard before. Uh, my mom actually came and they had divorced when I was in high school. And my mom had a lot of stories about my dad. Uh, but actually she was on great behavior and it was really a great thing. And at the end, it came the point of time where uh, I knew that I needed to share something about my dad. And that's what had caused some of the stress is because I had kind of an amazing story that had surrounded his death. And I'm going to get to the story in a few minutes. But I want to bring up the question, why is it that I felt compelled to share kind of this amazing story about how God had impacted my dad. Uh, It would have been much easier not to share it. That is not a crowd of people that go to church. Um, You know, I think that they're respectful of Christianity, but they are certainly not moved in Christianity. And I knew that bringing it up would create some tension in the group, and yet I felt compelled that I should say something, that I needed to, to speak about what had happened to my dad. And the reason for it is because of a passage that we're going to look at today in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you're in chapter 5, you can flip down to verse 13. Let me give you a little recap of what we talked about last week, and then we'll sort of hit the ground running. But basically, Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, is the greatest sermon that was ever given. It has changed the course of history. Uh, It's the biggest difference between the Western, sort of the Western world is so much different than the Eastern world. A lot of it has to go back to what Jesus said in these three chapters in Matthew. And it's amazing to think of the, just the incredible impact these chapters have had. Uh, we looked yesterday then at one of the, the major questions, which is, Who does God bless? How are people blessed? And the answer is really kind of staggering, surprising. Now, if blessed, and this is what blessed means, blessed means to experience God's best. That's what it means to be blessed. When If you're going to talk biblically about being blessed, it just means that you're experiencing God's God's best. That's what it means to be blessed. Well, we tend to use it differently, right? Around us, when we say uh, somebody is blessed, a lot of times what we mean is they have money. You know, oh, they've really been blessed by God, and we mean they have money. Or somebody might say, oh, I'm so blessed. I live on this beautiful in this beautiful house up on the hill, have a great view. I am blessed or I am blessed because I'm healthy, or I am blessed because uh, my family is in good shape. And those are great gifts. I mean, those are great things to look and thank God for, no question about it. But remember when we looked at the list yesterday, the list that Jesus says means you're blessed, or last week rather, that list is so different. It is so different than what we would think. And I was thinking it would be kind of cool if we could do this. Do you think that as a group we can come up with the eight character qualities, the eight Beatitudes uh, that Jesus gave. We're going to give it a try, okay? Because I know that we're better than the Irvine campus, and they couldn't pull it off. So we're going to do it, our mighty band, okay? So as you think, let's not like look at the, if you're, if you're reading it off of the page, that's not really playing. Okay? So let's try to do it. What are the eight qualities? We'll see if we can get them together. Peacemaker. Meek. Poor in pure in spirit, pure in heart, mourn, merciful. We're so close. Six, two more. <laughs> what? Persecuted, right? Somebody said persecuted. What's our last one? What? Yes. Seek after, seek and thirst after righteousness. Sorry, I can't. my ears. You guys are awesome. Okay, give yourselves a hand. Yay! We're so smart. Okay, so, but. Really, when you think about those qualities, those qualities don't seem to lead to blessing. I mean, that's not how we use blessing. But here's the thing that's really amazing is what Jesus would say is you get God's best when you depend on him, and those are qualities that make you depend on God, and when you act like Jesus. And those are qualities that Jesus, you know, He he embodied those qualities. Those were the qualities of Jesus. And so God basically says, When when you throw yourself into my arms by being this way, and when you act like my son, when you act like Jesus, you are the most blessed of people. And he would say, I supernaturally bless you when you do that. And so last week, that's what we looked at, is these qualities that God wants us to emulate and how we're blessed because of that. Well, right out of that then comes the next teaching and the teaching we're going to look at today. So let's read this together. And it says... You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way... Let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Now, in that statement, it begins with the word you, and in the Greek tense, it is an emphatic you, you. In fact, it really means this, you and only you. And as we recalled last week, that the Sermon on the Mount is primarily given to Jesus' disciples, but there's a whole crowd of people that aren't necessarily following Jesus or committed to Jesus, but they're interested in what he has to say. But it's the disciples that he's talking to. And so when he says you, he's talking to people that are are, uh, committed to Jesus, people who are pursuing the Beatitudes, those virtues. He says you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. These are purpose statements for believers. Okay, these are purpose statements for believers. This is what Jesus is saying is one of the roles that you take on, one of your greatest purposes, is once you're one of my followers, you become the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, this would have been a major, major statement to the people that Jesus was talking to. For one thing, the people that were on the hill that day, the people listening to Jesus, could not have felt less powerful than those people. They were a captured people. They were an oppressed people. The Roman government had come in. They were so under the control of Rome, and it was driving them crazy, but they felt very marginalized for that. They were also incredibly poor. I mean, really, wealth back in that day was if you had a change of clothing and if you knew where you were going to sleep that night. Those were the people considered wealthy or the people that weren't poor. And it was a hand-to-mouth existence back then. And so they had no power. They they had no resources. They had no real relational influence. And so for Jesus to look at sort of this, you know, this oppressed crowd and say, You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth, they would have said, they would have looked behind them and said, Are you talking to me? Are you talking to us? There's no way. We have no kind of influence around here. We are the last people that you could say this about. But Jesus now is not stating necessarily what is true of them right at the instant. He is saying this is the purpose that you've been called for. And he's saying you'd be surprised at what kind of influence or what kind of impact You're going to have. They look at themselves and they say, and this is interesting because it's at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It's at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. They don't even know that much about Jesus. They are certainly not mature followers. But again, Jesus is saying, but this is your purpose. This This is what you're going to step into. And I just want to call to your attention something that was sort of amazing. You know, three years later, two of the guys that were sitting there, Peter and John, This is after Jesus has died. He's resurrected, but he's left. They've started the church, and they're walking around in Jerusalem. And one day, a beggar comes up to them, somebody who's crippled, and says, you know, can you give me some money? And they say, well, we don't have any money. And so the guy probably starts to look away. And he goes, but we do have something. And so then the beggar looked back at him. And he says, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And the guy got up and walked, and everybody was totally impressed because this is the guy who had been crippled for a long time. Everybody's totally impressed. Everybody's looking at them. And Peter, being you know, sort of a, a great preacher, does not want to lose the opportunity to give a message. And so he gives this like, very powerful message in the temple, which was not the greatest place as far as the, the Jewish authorities thought it should be given. And he gives this thing, and people are sort of clamoring, and they're interested and so forth, and they don't know what else to do because it's getting out of hand, so they arrest Peter and John. And as they look at Peter and John and they say, what are you doing? What are you trying to do? They said, we have got to speak what's happened. And this really interesting statement is made in Acts 4, It says that when these leaders who had captured Peter and John, it says when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. In other words, they exemplified the character of Jesus. They were living out the beatitude. And God was using the power of that to actually, later it says in Acts, they were turning the world upside down. That's what it was said about. They were turning the world upside down. And here's the thing that's so important is that Jesus doesn't just look at you because you know what? You are ordinary. And I'm ordinary. There is nothing in us that makes us the light of the world or the salt of the earth. What makes us that way is that we're partnering with Jesus, who's incredibly powerful, And he says, if you will live out these virtues, if this is the kind of person you are, if you'll trust me, you can have an impact that is unbelievable because it's not really you having the impact. It's me having the impact through you. I can do these things through you. And we see that there's an incredible amount of power. So when Jesus is saying, you're the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth, even though those people would have said, no way, no way. Jesus is saying, but you don't understand. If you partner with me, it is unbelievable the impact that you're going to have. It's unbelievable. So let's go ahead and look at the two metaphors and just see what exactly did Jesus mean by calling us salt and light. Let's start with salt. He says, You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. Salt was mined from the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea was on the border of Israel, and the Jordan River flowed into it, and there was no outlet. It was below sea level, the the Dead Sea. How many of you have ever been to the Great Salt Lake? Have you ever been there? And you know why that's so salty? Because nothing flows out of the Salt Lake. So eventually, uh, everything flows in, and the water evaporates, and it becomes incredibly salty. And this looks like snow or ice. That's salt in the Dead Sea. So this is where they would get the salt from the Dead Sea. And uh, it would kill everything in the sea. The salt would kill, so there's not fish and so forth in the sea. Now, salt was much more than a spice. We just think of salt and pepper, and it's one of the spices that we use. In that day, salt was much more important Because it not only spiced food, which was important because food wasn't always the best tasting back then, but it also, what? Preserved. Preserved, right? And so what what you would do is if you got some meat, you would take salt, and because they didn't have refrigeration, you would actually rub the salt into the meat. And when you did that, it would preserve it. It would keep the meat for days and days and days. And so back in that day, salt was one of the most important substances that any culture could have. Uh, It was even said by historians that uh, without salt, uh, a world cannot endure without salt. The thought was salt is an essential. You've got to have salt. Uh, Many commentators think that there was all kinds of meanings of why Jesus used the term salt and what he meant by it, but he sort of gives us a clue here. Because he says, when salt loses its flavor... It's not very helpful anymore. He's talking about the flavor of salt. The point that Jesus is making is that when you you are uh, embodying the Beatitudes, when you have these character qualities, there's a certain flavor that comes off of you, and it actually impacts those people that are around you. Uh, People that are humble have a huge impact around the people that they're around. People that hunger and thirst for righteousness, who stand for good, people who are courageous even in the light of persecution, people who are merciful, people that show peace or are pure, they have a great impact around people. I mean, if you're around somebody like that, you're like, yeah, those people really have an impact. And the point that Jesus is making is that's the flavor of God. That's that's how God shows himself. It's how Jesus shows himself. When you're that way, it's how God comes in and says, that's my flavor. You're tasting me when you see those things. Uh, Just to sort of point out the humility part, I heard a great story, a true story, about a woman who who dated two very powerful men in England. And she said, when I was with the first guy, uh, every time we walked into a room, I knew I was with the most important person. She said, but I loved the second man, because every time I walked into a room, he made me feel like I was the most important person. The sign of humility. People love to be around other people that will push them up, make them look good, and do the things that are courteous and considerate, make them feel good about themselves. And the point that Jesus is making here is when, when, we, when we have these qualities in our life, we become salt. People are changed because of that. Uh, Our purpose is to become salty people. Uh, When we lived in South Carolina, I had a friend, and years and years ago, he was a golfing guy, and when he was a young guy, uh, he was coming back from this little golf tournament that he and his friends had thrown, and on the way back, his best friend who was with him, uh, not driving in the car, they were driving back separately, but best friend who had been down there, Uh, swerved off the road, fell asleep at the wheel, swerved off the road, and was killed. And so Thomas, my friend, uh, started to think, you know what, I want to do a golf tournament every year just in memory of my friend. And so the first time they got together, there was a dozen or so guys that went down to Myrtle Beach, and they played golf, and they had a great time, and they reflected on their friend. And then Thomas, my friend, who was sort of a leader by nature, said, you know what, we got to make this more than just about ourselves and just about our friend. Why don't we, uh, every time we come down, why don't we raise a little bit of money and we'll give it to a children's charity Uh, because our friend really loved kids and we'll give it to a children's charity. And so year after year, they would do that and slowly, every year, more people came. And the last few years, they've had uh, 250 men that have come from all over the country that play in this golf tournament. And they just crossed the millionth dollar that they've raised for these charities. And one of the things that they built is uh, this camp up in the mountains in South Carolina, this camp for children. And it's the most amazing story. And when I think of my friend, I think, that's a salty guy. That's a salty guy. That's a guy who is showing the characteristics of Jesus and doing things to show how Jesus' love transforms the world, how it changes the world. And that's what it means to be salt. When you think about salt, it is basically your character, your character coming out and making an impact. And the question is, are you rubbing yourself in to other people? One of the problems that I have, being a pastor on staff here, is I am surrounded by Christians all the time. And I love it. I mean, they're by far the easiest people for me to be with. But I have to go out of my way to try and get with people that aren't Christians. And you know what? There's a side of me that becomes very nervous when I'm trying to have an impact with non-Christians. I don't know how it is for you, but there's a part for me. I remember years ago, I was driving my roommate's car, and I pulled up to a gas station. My roommate was was very zealous as far as evangelism. And so by the gas tank, and this was back in the days when actually the attendants would fill up your gas with car. It wasn't self-serve. And he had this bumper sticker right next to the gas cap, cap, and it said, ask me about the living water. And so the guy, after he filled up my tank, came around because I was driving my roommate's car, and I had totally forgotten about the bumper sticker. And he said, "Uh, back there it tells me that I'm to ask you about the living water. And I was like, what? (laughs) Living water? And I said, oh, hey, you know, this is my roommate's car. I'm not sure what he's talking about. Was that awesome? Was that awesome? Is that a salt kind of guy? Oh, my gosh. It was such such a loser. So, you know, I'm certainly not successful all the times that I do this. But, you know, lately what I've tried to do is I play basketball on Saturday mornings. And there's a guy, a bunch of guys in my neighborhood that play. They've been playing this game actually for 20 years, more than 20 years. And I started showing up. And, and they are salty kind of on the other side. They're kind of salty in that their language is pretty pretty strong, and, and uh, this, the jokes they tell are, are pretty interesting, and, and they're yelling at each other constantly, and, and there's just, it's kind of a rough crowd. And when I first showed up, I just thought, whoa, is this pushing me out of my comfort zone? And uh, in fact, the very first day that I showed up, uh, we were playing, and some guy fell down and his head hit the knee of another guy, and it, it basically gave him a concussion. He started getting sick and so forth. And somebody said, hey, somebody needs to take this guy to the hospital. And it was my first day there, and I didn't know really anybody there. And I thought, there, there was two things. One was, what better way for me to step up and really show kind of the love of Jesus, to exemplify what Jesus would do. And then there was a whole other side of, these are all of his friends. Isn't there somebody else here that would do it? And sort of to my dismay now, because the story would be so much better if I like, took him to the hospital. I didn't. Somebody else got him in the car and took him to the hospital. So, you know, again, you're not talking about the greatest evangelist right here, Uh, but I will tell you this. A couple of weeks ago, we were playing, and uh, one of the guys uh, who has a really short temper got really on one of the other players on on his team, Uh, so much so that he he sort of cussed him out and did all this stuff, and the other guy got really mad, and there was sort of this back and forth, and after after the games were over, this guy who had sort of lost it left, and... uh, in that group, as soon as somebody leaves, everybody else talks about him. And uh, so everybody was going to talk about this guy. Uh, it's sort of the old axiom, be here or be talked about. Anyway, um, and they're, they're sort of ripping on this guy. And then I said, well, after they had said it for a little bit, I said, but you know, one thing I noticed is he went up and apologized after the whole thing happened. And it totally changed the conversation.'" All of a sudden, they said, well, it is true. He does sort of have a conscience, and, you know, he just gets wired. He's actually a pretty good guy. And I felt like just in a little way that in that case, I had been salt. In that case, I had come in and sort of stood up for somebody that wasn't there, and that was a good thing. Well, you are called to be salt, and the question is, where are you rubbing your life in with other people? Where are you having this kind of impact where the character qualities Uh, that Jesus wants to display through you are being displayed to people who don't know him right now. The second metaphor that's used is the light of the world. And it says the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. Now, this term, light of the world, was used in the Old Testament. They would have been familiar with this the, uh, Israel had been called to be the light of the world. In Isaiah 42.6, it says, I will keep you and make you to be a covenant uh, for the people and a light for the Gentiles, or a light for the nations." And this was always God's plan, is that he would have a people, the Jews in the Old Testament, that would be his light, that would sort of reflect God's glory and point people to God. And there was, a, there was the part of who they were, but there was a huge part, too, that Israel was to verbally tell other nations, to tell the Gentiles, the non-Jews, how they could find God, that they were the prophets, the ones that prophetically spoke, and they would tell other people how to find God, how to be connected. And so the light of the world really has to do with something verbal. It's not just being a great person. It's not just being like Jesus. It's not just trying to emulate him. It's also, at the proper time, saying what needs to be said. And so the salt comes first. This idea of the very first thing people should know about you is you've got a character quality that's appealing. You've got character qualities that are unlike what people usually see in the world. Uh, They're the kinds of things that people want to be around. But that isn't enough. There also has to be the verbal part, where you actually say something. I began by telling you a little bit about my dad and going to the memorial service. Well, when we got up there, and after everybody had shared, uh, Julie and I had decided and, that I needed to share what happened uh, on the last night of my dad's life. I had been with him the week before. I was out in California on some business, and I had been with him actually the week before. And we had talked, and we knew that this was the last time that we were going to be together because he was very sick at that point. And um, I said, Dad, you know, I know that there's been tension between the two of us ever since I became a Christian 35 years ago. And he said, you're right. And I said, um, I said, I just want you to know that um, I, I haven't put pressure on you to become a Christian just because I need you to accept what I accept. It, that isn't the issue. I said, but here's my greatest fear, is that... You know, you're going to die soon, and someday I'm going to die. And if I'm right about Christianity and about Jesus, I just want us to be in the same place. I want us to be together forever and ever and ever. And my dad said, well, I want that too. Now, he wasn't, I don't think he was accepting Jesus at that point, But that was finally something that had touched him. And my dad's a smart guy. He taught philosophy of religion over at UCI for years and years and years. And we'd had debates back and forth. But finally, it just came down to a very personal uh, proposition that I was making. Do we want to be together for eternity if I'm right? Well, anyway, we had, we had a great last few hours together, and we were able to say the things to each other that we wanted to say and how much we loved each other, so it was great. And my dad really gave me a blessing just by telling me how proud he was that I was a son and all those things. Well, anyway, I left, and I was going to call him the next weekend, and I called him on Saturday, and his wife, uh, Roxanne, answered the phone, and she said, you know, your dad's not been feeling well all day. He's been upstairs in his bedroom. How about if he calls you tomorrow, you call back tomorrow? And I said, well, that sounds great. So the next day was Sunday, went to church, uh, called after I got back from church. And when Roxanne answered the phone, she said, why are you calling? I said, well, I was just calling to talk to my dad. And she said, well, I need to tell you something. And she didn't get straight to the point, but after about five minutes, she said, your dad died last night. And um, I don't know if you've ever had a parent die or somebody super close, and you you just feel like a load of bricks just fell on your head. And so I'm just sitting there and and she's trying to explain what had happened and they sleep in separate bedrooms. She said, I went in and gave your dad his medicine before I went to bed and then in the morning I came and he was on the floor. It it looked, and she's not religious at all, so she didn't mean anything by this. She said it just looked like he had gotten down on his knees and then he had fallen over and died. And he died around 1 o'clock in the morning. The coroner had already been there. Well, I told Julie this uh, after I found out all about it. And Julie said, we have to read my journal. And I was like, why? And she goes, you won't believe this. And so she gets her journal, and she had woken up in the middle of the night. In fact, I'd seen her or felt her get out of bed, but I was preaching the next morning, so I didn't want to get up. And so she got out of bed. And uh, she had gotten up because she was woken up, and it was about Uh, at 3 o'clock our time on the East Coast, which would have been midnight back here. She was woken up, and there was this very strong impression where she felt like God was saying, I need you to get up. There's something I need to tell you. And this has happened on occasion to Julie. There was one time where this happened, and she felt like God was saying, you need to pray for our son Josh, who was a young adult at the time. And it turned out that as she woke up in the middle of the night and started praying, we found out the next day that Josh had been in a car accident, that he had rolled his car... The car had rolled all the way over and then landed back on its wheels. And uh, people from behind, because he got out of the car, he was unhurt. People from behind said, we cannot believe that you're not hurt. In fact, later, he came back to the car and just drove it off. (laughs) Not even the car was that hurt. And uh, when he told us the next day, Julie said, when did that happen? And it was right when she had woken up and felt like she needed to pray for our son. So this was something that has happened on occasion to Julie. Well, anyway, she went out into the living room and she started journaling And what she felt like God was saying is, Nelson, my dad, is dying. But it's okay. He's not alone. I'm with him. And uh, that's the only word that we got on that. Never talked to my dad, never confirmed anything. And so it was a little weird when I thought, should I tell the rest of the family this story? It's a little weird. It's a little strange. It's a little mysterious but I just thought, you know what? They need to hear the words. They respect me for what I believe. I think they think I'm a good guy. They need to hear the story. And there was nobody at the memorial that just fell down and became a Christian or anything. But it was a very powerful time. And that's what it means to be the light. And I don't tell that story to make it sound like I do such a good job, because you already know, I don't always do a good job on this. But that's what it means. It means to tell your story, to make Jesus known. There's a very interesting point that Jesus makes about the light here because it says a city set on a hill. That's not what it says in the version that you have, but if you were to read the Greek, it says a city set on a hill. And uh, back in those days, cities were set on hills because hills were easy to defend, and that was very important. And so you go to Jerusalem, Jerusalem's on a hill there was a city named Sepphoris that was about three miles from where Jesus lived. In fact, and these are obviously, that's not a picture that was taken back when Jesus lived, but those are the ruins of Sepphoris. And again, that's about three miles from Nazareth. And it overlooks the Sea of Galilee. And as you can see, it's up on a hill. And uh, this was a city that was made out of limestone. So that during the day, the limestone would sort of shine. And at night, when the torches came on, the city would glow. And it's very probable that every night when Jesus went to bed and he looked over towards Sepphoris, that he could see Sepphoris because it, sort of, it stood out. It shined on a hill, and it's very likely that this is what he's referring to as far as just in his mind when he says it. And here's the thing that's so amazing is um, Herod Antipas built this city. It was to be his crown city. He was the king uh, of that region, and it was his crown city, so he was very meticulous in picking the perfect spot to put the city, and he built the city up on this hill that overlooked the Sea of Galilee and was very spectacular and was easy to guard. In other words, it was strategically placed. And then Jesus says, in houses, people light their candles or their lamps, and they don't put them under a bowl. In fact, they put them in the most strategic place in the house, so it will light up the whole house. You need to light the house, so it's strategically placed. And the point that Jesus is making here is not just that it's important for you to be the light of the world, but that you have been strategically placed. And I just want to make this point, because so often we don't think we're strategic at all. So often when you think about the place you work, or the school you attend, or the neighborhood you live in, or the people that you work with, uh, you look at that and you go, well, there's nothing strategic about that. And yet, The point that Jesus is making is God has placed you strategically with the people that you're around. You are strategically placed. And I want you to think about now the people in your life. You know, the people that you work with, maybe the people in your family, the friends you hang out with, the people who you go to school with, uh, the folks that live around you in your neighborhood, or the folks whose kids are playing on the soccer team with your kids, it is not a mistake that you're in their life. You have been strategically placed to have an impact. And you think, well, but somebody else would do such a better job than me. I mean, if Kevin's lame, I'm even lamer. You know, maybe that's what you're thinking. But here's the deal. You're the one that's been strategically placed. You're the one that's been set on the hill. You're the one that God is saying, listen, if you will trust me and make a move in the right direction, if you'll be salt and be the kind of person that sort of emulates who I am, and if you'll be light and say your story or say the words, you you have no idea about the impact that you can have. It can be amazing. So, as uh, we sort of close down here, I want you to just think about who God has placed in your life. Who are you salt to? Who this week do you need to be salt to? Do some kind of activity, show in some kind of way that you love them, that you're going to put them first, that you're going to to think about them, that you're going to make them notice your good deeds. And maybe for some of you, it's come time the point where you need to say something. They already like you. They already think you're kind of special. They already see your character. But so far, all they think is you're just a really nice person. You're just an awesome person. And Jesus wraps up this teaching by by saying, in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, not so you'll look good, but so that they'll praise your heavenly Father, that God will look good. You need to say something. You need to point out. Maybe it's just telling your story of something God's done in your life. Maybe it's praying for them. You know, a lot of people will not turn down prayer, even if they're not religious. If you say, can I just pray for you? It sounds like that's kind of a hard thing you're going through. Most people will say yes. Maybe it's just telling them about what Jesus has done for you and, and what he could do for them. But that's what it means to be salt and light. And I just look at our church, and I, you know, we're about ready to enter back into Huntington Beach where you live or Fountain Valley where you live. We go as salt and light That's how a whole city has changed, how a whole community changes when we do something like that. It's an exciting time for us. It's an exciting time. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach. For more information about Mariner's, visit www.marinerschurch.org.